Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Dueling Club. Today we will be discussing Parseltongue, a surprisingly eventful club meeting, and a fresh set of attacks. So David, this week I was wondering, if you were in a wizard's duel, what would be your first move? So not really your first spell, but what type of thing would you try to do? Well, I think it's all about trying to predict what your opponent's about to do and then counter that. So it's a big mind game, really. So I think my first thing that I would try to do would be to um, use legitimacy and try to predict what my opponent is about to do that way. Oh, okay. So you're assuming that you have lots of skills here. Well, yeah. In this scenario, I'm a fully-fledged wizard with tons of abilities, obviously. Gotcha. That's probably the best idea. I was thinking that I would do something... I would try to do something distracting. So I would try to cast a spell that would either, like, create a strange noise or a strange image or something that wasn't necessarily, like, an attack on the person, but was something enough to disarm them. So, like, if it suddenly caused fireworks or something like that. Oh, that's a good idea. That they may think is, like, a charm, but actually it's just distraction. And then I could, you know, hit them with something worse after that. So before we get to the dueling in this chapter, let's do a quick synopsis of what happens. So first, the bones in Harry's arm are all regrown, and he leaves the hospital wing to find Ron and Hermione in Moaning Myrtle's bathroom, where they're working on making the Polyjuice potion. The news about Colin Creevy being attacked is all over the school, and everyone is really upset about it, especially Ginny. The trio plans to steal ingredients from Snape's private stores during a potions lesson, and they do this by Harry creating a diversion with a firework and Hermione sneaking in and stealing the ingredients while Snape is distracted. The school organizes a dueling club meeting, and almost the whole school attends. Lockhart is leading the club for some reason, with Snape as his assistant for some reason. (laughs) Snape pairs Harry and Malfoy together, and while doing a demonstration, Malfoy summons a large snake to attack Harry, which instead moves toward Justin Finch-Fletchley. Harry, moved by some unknown instinct, moves toward the snake and tells it to leave Justin alone. The snake relaxes, and Snape vanishes it. Justin looks angry and scared and leaves hurriedly. Ron and Hermione usher Harry away, and Ron explains that Harry was speaking parcel tongue, snake language, and that this is a skill normally reserved to dark wizards. Further, that Salazar Slytherin was a famous parcel mouth, and that now the school will think Harry's the heir of Slytherin for sharing that gift. Harry tries to explain to Justin that he was just trying to help, not egg the snake on, but overhears Ernie McMillan and some other Hufflepuffs talking about how Harry was chasing the snake toward Justin and is therefore the heir, and Harry becomes annoyed and stomps off. Harry runs into Hagrid shortly after and discovers a petrified Justin and a smoky, blackened, nearly headless Nick. Professor McGonagall arrives on the scene, and despite Harry's protest that he is innocent, marches him up to Dumbledore's office. So for this episode, we're going sort of chronologically in the chapter, and one of the first things we wanted to talk about was um, Hermione, and we've mentioned over the past several episodes that she's been increasingly willing to disregard the rules because she feels like she's threatened and Muggleborns are being threatened. 
So um, she's willing to do things that are really risky and dangerous. So what is she planning to do here that's so out of character for her even just a few chapters ago? So she's planning to break into Snape's private stores to steal what she needs um, for the remainder of the Polyjuice Potion. And, I mean, we've seen her increasingly break more and more rules, be kind of more risky, but this is something that's not only going against a teacher, but is actually stealing from a teacher, is actually disrupting class, Mm -hmm. all the stuff that she would never normally do. So we see, again, that this is, um, she is doing what she believes is right, and she will basically go to any measure to get that. And also, uh, we should keep in mind, this isn't the kind of thing where if they got caught, like they'd get detention or something. Snape literally says to the class when he discovers the firework that was the distraction, he was like, if I ever find out who threw this, I will make sure that person is expelled. Right. And part of the reason that Hermione didn't want Ron and Harry to steal the ingredients, but wanted herself to do it is because they were already in a lot of trouble this year. And she felt like they would be expelled if they were caught, whereas she could probably get away with breaking the rules in this case and not being expelled. Right. But it's still something that, you know, she, that normally Harry and Ron would be doing the volunteering for, and she would be kind of doing the clever distraction or, um, you know, something like that. It would probably have been a lot easier. She she could have maybe distracted Snape in a different way, but um, she is really willing to risk even her own expulsion to do this. Yeah, and it's a nice role reversal, too, because as we see, you know, as you said, normally Harry and Ron would be volunteering for the actual, like, crime, and Hermione would be a distraction, whereas now she's not only the mastermind of the whole operation, but Harry and Ron are kind of like, well, do we really want to do that? Mm -hmm. Um, They're hesitating, and she's like, nope, I got a plan. I got it all worked out. Here's what we're going to do. You guys are going to distract them. I'm going to break in and steal the ingredients we need. So she is not only, like, willing to break the rules, she's, like, actively campaigning to get them to go along with her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a big role reversal um, when we look back at the last book and now this one. She's a completely different person. So now on to the titular dueling club. So why do you think that they, I'm assuming just the faculty in general or maybe Lockhart, maybe Snape started the dueling club? I mean... This is a one-time thing, doesn't happen again as far as we know, possibly because it doesn't end up well, but it's kind of a strange, you know, plot insertion, which I'm not sure exactly why in world they would start the dueling club. Yeah, um, it's interesting because you would think that a school like Hogwarts would sort of encourage things like this, that they would have a dueling club, you know? To teach kids that skill of dueling, which it turns out is pretty important when there's dark wizards running around. But you're right in the sense that since this never comes up again, it's, it does seem kind of weird and off-putting that it's just there one day and the next day it's gone again. And also, why does Lockhart want to start the club? You know, it could have something to do with his need for attention and fame, but as we've been seeing over and over, he's really incompetent, and there's never a time when that's more publicly on display than when he's trying to demonstrate magic for people, and we just saw that happen right. in the last chapter. Um, so why would he want to be the leader of a dueling club? You know, what's up with that? I don't know. I mean, it's strange. I think in some ways he's so delusional that he, you know, we've talked about how he really believes his own lies. Um, and we've just seen in the last chapter that he, again, publicly tries to repair Harry's arm and ends up, you know, taking all the bones out. So I don't really know why he continues to, you know, right one right after another, subject himself to these public displays of 
embarrassment, but I think that he either is so delusional or partly wants to be caught or just likes to have attention, even if it's embarrassing attention. I'm not sure. Or likes to be involved with whatever's going on. Um, but it is strange a little bit that he is the leader and that Snape is involved in this. Yeah, so that's another thing, too. Why would Snape want to be involved in this? Snape's obviously an excellent duelist. We see that many times throughout the series. But, like, why would he volunteer to be Lockhart's assistant? It seems very out of character for him. It does. And one thing I was thinking rereading this chapter is that um, earlier in the chapter when Harry throws the firework in Snape's class for a distraction. Um, Snape does not see who did it, but he's staring at Harry and he is want to blame Harry for things. So I think that it's possible that he could have been trying to um, get himself involved so that he can either embarrass or hurt or just punish Harry slash the Gryffindors for Mm -hmm. what happened in that class or just in general something he likes to do because he clearly has has it planned out that Harry and Malfoy are going to be partners and um you know split up people so I think that that's something it's a possibility yeah I think that makes a lot of sense and um, the other thing is that a lot of injuries happen at the dueling club and safety seems really not to be something that anyone thought about when they were preparing for this I mean there's no like enchantments placed on the the great hall or or on you know on the students wands to make sure they don't hurt each other there's no like staff standing by to heal injuries or anything if things go wrong um it's just like every man for himself yeah. yeah total free for all and and you know you have to wonder like did everyone sign off on this plan or was it just something lockhart like was just decided like i'm just gonna do this and who cares right about I mean, safety you, you would know? assume that Um, at least the heads of houses would have had to sign off or know about it. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, If it is Dumbledore signing off, it's another one of those confusing decision-making things of Dumbledore's. But but it does seem highly unusual that this would happen because the only times we see something similar to this is when Dumbledore's army begins. And that is something that obviously the students are organizing and they are doing in secret. And they're practicing, you know, defensive charms, but like, in theory, dueling with each other. Yeah. And that essentially becomes the dueling club for the right. school in the fifth year. Yeah. Another interesting thing that happens during the dueling club is that um, Snape teaches Harry by accident, basically, um, what would become his favorite spell, which is the disarming charm, Expelliarmus. Harry uses it, I mean, it, again and again, it's basically his trademark spell right. to the point where people recognize him because he's using it. Uh, and. It turns out that he learned it from watching Snape duel Lockhart. Yeah, this is the first time he sees it, as far as we know. Yeah, this is the first time it's mentioned in the series. And we don't actually see Harry learning the spell, but by fourth year, it's like part of his regular arsenal of spells. Yeah. So he's he's clearly practiced it a bunch of times, but we can infer that this is the first time that he's seen it used and that it was actually Snape that taught him that spell, which is kind of funny. It is interesting kind of thinking about the rest of the series and the fact that Snape is the one that teaches him this, which is ultimately, you know, what he uses when he's doing Voldemort. 
As we mentioned, we now, in this chapter, get a name for Harry's ability to talk to snakes, which is something that we first saw in book one um, when Harry is talking to the snake at the zoo before he even knows he's a wizard, as he mentions again in this chapter. So, um, parcel tongue is a language, and a person who can speak parcel tongue is a parcel mouth. And we learn that it's really rare. Um, Harry doesn't even realize that he's speaking a different language. He thinks it's English, so he said to the snake, leave him alone, and that's what the reader, you know, hears or reads about, but apparently it's not English. It's some sort of maybe hissing snake-like noise. Yeah, this is a really interesting part of the magic of of parcel tongue language, because parcel mouths perceive it as normal English. Their, Their brain basically sends normal English to their mouth, but the magic of that interaction of being face to face with a snake, it's almost like an innate trigger. Like you don't even realize you're doing it. Right. Um, and so Harry and the reader perceive normal English and everybody else around them is like, what are you doing? What are those noises that are coming out of you? Um, and so that's, that's a really interesting thing from our perspective as readers. We didn't realize anything was wrong either uh, until other characters pointed it out to us. Right. Basically. And Ron and Hermione are are kind of freaked out, we see in this. I mean, they're staring at him, and they're sort of like, why didn't you tell us? And Harry explains he didn't even know it was a thing. But they're kind of freaked out. I mean, they obviously trust Harry. They know he's not evil. But Mm -hmm. they're saying, you know, for all we know, you could be related to Slytherin. You don't really know a lot about your family background. And so it's kind of interesting to see here how um, even Ron and Hermione are sort of getting freaked out by this ability and this is just another thing that's kind of adding to the horror element of the chapter which we'll get to later on yeah so this is basically just like one more thing where it's just like everything points to harry being the heir of slytherin and it's so like yeah like you're saying it's horror elements it's like harry's even starting to distrust himself and we're going to see eventually that the culprit quote-unquote culprit is someone who doesn't have any recollection of doing anything wrong. Right. And and she starts to suspect herself because she has no memory of what she was doing during the attacks. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so that's that's the horror element of this for now. Um, the, the other interesting thing is that we might be putting together um, some clues about what's going on with the monster, um, which we'll get to a little bit later. But I'd like to point out that now we understand something more about what makes Harry special. And we've seen in this book that um, Harry is the only one that can hear the monster moving around and talking. Everybody else hears nothing. Uh, And so we thought maybe at first it was Harry just hearing voices. Somehow he's connected to this monster. But now we have a clue basically that Harry is the only one with this special gift of parcel tongue. And he hears English where other people hear snake language. Mm -hmm. So maybe that suggests that the monster is a snake. And we'll get into this a lot more later on in the series, but um, this is the first time we really learn about what parcel tongue is, and it's a clue much later on that Harry and Voldemort have a much stronger connection than just the presence of Harry's scar. So next we have the actual attack, and this is the third attack so far in this book, and it's now a double attack. It was the victims were Justin Finch-Fletchley and Nearly Headless Nick, who is a ghost, and this is the first time we've ever seen anything that can affect ghosts in this way or in any way, really, because there's, they're, you know, they're apart from this world, so they shouldn't really be affected by anything. So 
we have to ask, you know, as readers, like, what happened and how could this possibly have affected Nearly Headless Nick? Right. So, I mean, we know what we know what really happened in a way, which is that which is that Justin sees the monster through Nick. So through the ghost. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing like the reflection or the water and the camera that is a barrier that keeps um, the people so far from being killed. Um, so we know that that's what happened, but it's creepy that it could affect Nick even at all. So he's kind of been burned up like the camera was. Yeah. Um, and it's not really clear what happens because I'm sure that, you know, there's a lot of people that, um, try to petrify or stun ghosts or something and nothing happens to them because they're dead. So it's strange that this type of magic or type of petrifying does affect them somehow and, um... It'll be interesting to see kind of how they get Nick out of this state. Yeah. And that leads me into um, kind of one of the bigger things I wanted to talk about in this chapter, because even though Harry and company haven't really started to unravel this mystery, I think we as readers have a lot of clues about what the monster is. And I wanted to just put that together in a list and, and sort of see where we're at right now. So what we know about the monster, it petrifies its victims it destroys a camera. It somehow affects ghosts. It attacks roosters. Only Harry can hear its voice. Spiders seem to be afraid of it because they keep fleeing the scene of the attacks um, in a straight line, which is obviously really uncommon for spiders. Um, and what we can also infer from all of the attacks is there was some sort of reflection, refraction, or like transparency between each of the people or creatures that was attacked and whatever the monster is. Mm -hmm. So they didn't, they may not have seen it directly. They may have seen a reflection of it or it through a lens or a ghost or something like that. Right. Um, and so what we can maybe infer from all of that is that whatever the monster is, it has an ability, something like the Medusa of Greek mythology. So it, if you look at it, it turns you to stone. Um, and even the word petrification, it comes from the word like to turn to stone. Um, so obviously like the students aren't actually made of stone anymore, you know, but like they're, they're petrified in a sense, they can't move or speak. They're essentially in a coma. Um, right. and so that leads us to think that whatever this monster is, it probably has some ability sort of like that. Um, and maybe that ability only works if you see its reflection or an image of it or something. Um, and this would fit with spiders fearing the monster as well because they have so many eyes. So yeah. if it has to do with like looking at it, um, then that would explain the spiders fleeing. It doesn't explain the rooster attacks, so we don't have an explanation for that yet. Um, but based on the fact that only Harry can hear its voice, as I said before, that implies that the monster is some kind of a snake. Um, because as far as we know, he's the only parcel mouth at Hogwarts. So the fact that only he can hear it is indicative of that. So that's what we've got so far. It's some kind of a snake that can look at you and turn you into stone. Yeah, so we know some things, and it's still confusing at this point. I mean, obviously, how the monster is getting out, um, how other people aren't seeing it, how it's getting away so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, it, it does seem, you know, Harry sort of hears it in the walls, and maybe it's there's something to do with that. Um which we know it, it does in the sewers later, but it it is still strange to think about how, um, especially Harry comes upon the scene of crimes pretty quickly after so far, and, mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't ever see anything um, 
other people don't see anything and it's um interesting yeah and people keep having to rely on just harry's word that he didn't have anything to do with it um and so we have to ask is it bad luck that the victims a keep being people that harry's had run-ins with and b he happens to stumble upon the scene of the crime like every single time is that just bad luck or are they connected in some way so harry even starts to doubt himself a little you know he's thinking you know could i be behind these attacks i don't i don't think i was you know but uh, like he even starts to doubt himself a little bit and and he thinks about how you know the sorting hat considered placing him in slytherin the hat said slytherin will help you on your way to greatness there's no doubt about that and then harry like starts to worry somehow that he's toyed with fate by like asking to be in gryffindor and that he belongs in slytherin and that somehow he's actually the heir and in a way he is because he's got that you know part of part of voldemort Voldemort, yeah yeah, and Ginny, you know, there's a couple thoughts about why Ginny, even while possessed by Riddle, is going after people in conflict with Harry. You know, it could either be that she, possessed by Riddle, is either trying to get close to Harry, attack Harry, but she knows that she can't, you know, get Harry yet because Riddle wants to get him himself. Um, is she just trying to be near him, or is it something where she's, because Ginny, the person, cares about Harry, she's trying to um, somehow attack people that Harry's been in conflict with. Yeah, and and that's an interesting question. I think we've been asking that for a few chapters now. Um, and the evidence keeps piling up that there is some connection, whether it's subconscious or whether it's totally just Riddle controlling her, um, but that there is some link between Harry and these attacks somehow. Right. I like the idea personally that Ginny's subconscious is driving them, at least in part, to mm-hmm. to attack people that have um, been in conflict with Harry. But I, you know, again, we don't have that much evidence for that idea. And another thing that I'm just thinking about too, um, with the you know, where does the monster go so quickly, is also thinking about you know, Ginny, like where is she? Is she physically there? Is she physically? Is she in the chamber at this time? Is she? you know, somewhere else, but directing the monster through Riddle. I don't know if we know exactly where she physically is during these attacks, but so far she hasn't been, you know, like limp at the scene of the crime or nearby or anything that would indicate that she's involved at all, of course, you know, to throw the reader off. But I think logistically, I'm wondering, you know, where she is during the attacks and kind of like what happens to her during and after. That's a great question. And it's one we never get an answer to. So we can speculate about that. I I guess in my head, it was always um, a kind of thing where she went down to the chamber, summoned the basilisk out, and then uh, just like gave it instructions and then like went back upstairs and pretended like nothing had happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the basilisk, it's a very intelligent creature, just like goes off, attacks somebody and then comes back. Right. Um, But I don't know. I mean, all we can do is speculate again. And also another thing is, you know, are Ginny slash Riddle intending to petrify and not kill people? Like, are they purposely getting them into positions or situations where they're going to view the basilisk through a reflection. Um, you know, is there some motivation there for not wanting to kill people yet? Or is that all coincidence? Mm. Is that Ginny's influence? Is, is Riddle wanting to actually not kill anyone at this point? Um, because then maybe the school would be closed or something would happen. Mm-hmm. So there's a, like a lot of questions there about those motivations. All great questions. And we don't have any answers, but... 
they're good things to wonder about. And with this attack, basically, we see the book starting to sort of become a horror book. Um, obviously toned down for a younger audience, but with a lot of the tropes of that genre, and, and we'll talk about that more as we get towards the end of the book, but I would just like to point out the sort of imagery of this attack where this monster comes out of nowhere mm-hmm. and it looks at you and then you're you're stunned, you're petrified. Um, the idea that it can even attack ghosts, uh, you know, there's something really terrifying about that idea that even in death you can't escape this monster somehow. It is, I mean, it is terrifying and it is toned down for a younger audience, but I mean, it's scary reading it now and thinking about it more deeply um, about how terrifying it must have been to yeah. be there. But Rowling does a really skillful job of making it um, more lighthearted and toned down by interlacing all these horror moments with comedy moments. Yes. So we have Peeves is the one that discovers Harry at the scene of the crime. And then he like brings comic relief to the scene because he's a jokester. Mm -hmm. So he like, you know, he's like upside down when he sees Harry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's this like really funny moment for the reader. And then, you know, after he like panics and, and calls everybody out to the scene he's described as like enjoying the chaos oh yeah and and it's a funny moment even if it is like a terrifying scene like peeves being there um brings that relief to the scene that wouldn't have been there otherwise and so i think this is an example of of how good rowling is at writing for this younger audience Mm -hmm. even though there are these dark moments they're they're spliced with these lighter moments to make them um more easy to digest for kids and finally, um, we just see that at the very end, you know, McGonagall probably wants to defend him, but she knows at this point she can't. There's so much evidence against him that Harry, you know, is kind of resigned to this. He's even doubting himself. So um, it's just he's in a really bad position right now. And he ends up going to Dumbledore's office and that's where the chapter ends. So we're not sure how Dumbledore is going to react, but it's that serious that even McGonagall can't speak to him basically without... Dumbledore's consent first. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and the Dueling Club. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially the attack on Justin and Nearly Headless Nick, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at www.theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we switch into Chapter 12, The Polyjuice Potion. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.